take your Bibles, if you would, again, and turn back to that Ephesians 2 passage with me this morning. I don't know about you, but I've received a lot of really nice gifts over the years for Christmas and even for my birthday. But you've probably got a lot too, but not too many have stood out, maybe above the rest in some unusual way. They've been very nice. But there are a couple that have. Um, I think the ones that stand out in my mind stand out because of the thoughtfulness went into it, or at times even the costliness and the sacrifice that went it to show from the giver the love that they had for me. But most of us have never experienced in our lives or have ever been given a singular gift that we would say this, that gift changed my life. My friend John Butler had that experience. He had kidney problems his entire life. And the morning that he got the call, he called it as I talked to him this week, he didn't know that he was that sick. He he knew he had a problem, but he didn't know it was that bad. And so on October 31st of 2004, uh, John got a call from his kidney specialist. It was out of the blue. He wasn't expecting a call at all. And he basically just said this sentence to him, John, your kidney is failing and you need to start dialysis right away or get a transplant very soon. Needless to say, when you don't think or know that stuff's coming, John was stunned. In fact, he said he hardly said a word in response to the doctor's call. Looking back, he would tell me that He didn't know that a 10-second phone call could change your entire life. That Christmas, a short time later after he got the call, he called his parents and his sisters and got them on the phone and began to tell them about the serious nature of his health condition. And so in hearing that, his sisters got together and they all decided that they were going to get tested to see if they would be a match uh, for a transplant for John. And out of his three sisters, his youngest sister, Barbie, actually was a perfect match. I mean, perfect down to every single detail. And so it was on June 6th, 2005, John received a gift from his sister that would change his life. And that was a new kidney. That was life-changing for it. It meant he had no reason to get dialysis. He wasn't worried about the future if his kidney would be healthy It changed. He even said in a small way, for years, because of his kidney problems, I don't know how this relates, but he couldn't smell or taste anything. He said that all changed in a matter of a day. He says, it was the greatest change of my life. And 17 years later, I told, he just had a checkup and they said, your kidney is unbelievably doing well. Most people need another transplant by now. And they said, we think that yours is going to last the rest of your normal life. Amazing transformation and change. All because of a singular gift. See, our series in the last few weeks leading up to Christmas has been this. It's called the gift of God because in every one of the texts that we've been looking at, that little phrase, that exact little phrase has been in our text. And so it is in this morning's verses in Ephesians chapter 2. See, the gift of God is like no other gift. It is the singular gift that God can give to you 
that can change your life forever. And by the way, not just now, as John's gift did, but for eternity. You see, there are some of us, in fact, probably only a few of us in this uh, auditorium who will ever need a kidney transplant. But the scripture says every single one of us are going to need the gift of a heart transplant. And I don't mean physical, I mean spiritual. See, the gift of God, if you'll let it, will change your life forever. So this morning, just briefly, I want to unwrap the gift of God and tell you about it and just ask two questions. And that is, number one, why do we need it? And number two, how do we get it? Why do we need it and how do we get it? Let's look at our text together, the first three verses. You read them before with me. Why do we need it? Well, let me show you the whole framework of how it works in this paragraph. This whole 10-verse section is a series of distinctive contrasts. Watch them. Look at the text with me. You'll see them pretty easily. It says that we were dead in our sins. That's verses 1 and 5. And contrast that. 2.5 says, Jesus made us alive. So here's the contrast. You were dead in your sins before him, and now he has made you alive. It talks about a whole different lifestyle that we had before Jesus and after Jesus. Look at the word walk in verse 2. You once walked this way, and it has a whole line of descriptions going with it. But at the end of the text, in verse 10, it says, God prepared a certain amount of activities and, and deeds for you to do because he wanted you to walk in them. See, it's a contrast of what you used to walk like, how you used to behave, how you used to live your life, and now the difference. Verse 2 says that you walked according to the course of this world. And the word in the Greek is actually age. It's the same word used more clearly in chapter 2, verse 7, the ages to come or the coming ages. See, it's a contrast between the world in which we live now, this age, this present time, marked by this type of life, and the coming age, which Jesus will rule, and the lifestyle that you live. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, we walked according to and followed the prince of the power of the, of the air. That's none other than the devil, See, in your life, and everyone in this room and in this world, see, the devil is at work. But at the same time, in contrast, verse 4 and verse 8 through 10, it says, God is at work. So the whole text, the whole framework, the whole structure of this paragraph is about contrast. And here's why. Because Paul is intent on showing his audience and us how indispensable the gift of God is in our lives. In fact, this is only the first of five sequences of contrast of what you once were and now what you will become. Five different times over the course of Ephesians, here's what he does. He wants to say, this is what you were and this is what you became. And the difference between the two is the gift of God. It's indispensable in your life. You say, how is that true, Pastor Walker? Let me give you one prime example in our text. Verse 5 says, verse 2 says, in verse 5, you were dead, even when you were dead. Please listen this morning. I want you to know the truth about what Paul says. You and I in our sin are not sick spiritually. We are dead. We are not spiritually in need of a hospital this morning because spiritually we are in the morgue. 
And why is that important? Because if we were only sick spiritually, there would be differing degrees of sickness. And so you could be a little more sick than I could be, and I could be a little more sick than you, and you could be a little more sinful, and I could be a little more sinful, and our depravity could have different effects on our lives. But since we are dead spiritually, dead spiritually, the gift of God is indispensable because without it, you cannot have life. This isn't a matter about you getting healthier. This is a matter about you becoming alive. So Paul wants us to know that that's how much you need the gift of God. You need it like a dead person needs to have life. So what are you saying, Pastor Walker? Come on. What are you saying? Am I that bad? Am I, are you trying to say I'm kind of like Hitler or Mussolini or someone really awful in the pages of history? No, Paul's not saying that you're as bad as they are. He's saying you are as bad off as they are. And what the Bible is trying to tell us And what Paul is trying to tell us is that our sin and our depravity is pervasive. It has saturated, it has touched every single area of your life. Now, you may have controlled to some degree the effects of it and how it plays out in your life. But every single person in this world who has ever lived is completely pervaded with sin. That's what the Bible says about us. Now, why do you do that, Pastor Walker? That's not very exciting. It's Christmas time. Could you give me something more positive? Here's why you need to know it. You cannot fully and clearly understand grace until you understand your sin. You can't. You cannot properly understand the need of grace until you understand the magnitude of your sin. See, listen to people, and I have many, many times tons of times over my life, people who don't really see or want to see the power and the size and the magnitude of their sin. Here's what it sounds like. And they don't, therefore, understand grace at all either. And they'll say things like this. Pastor Walker, I do need God. I need him. But I'm a pretty good person, you know. Or they'll say to me, hey, I'm not perfect. Nobody really is. And by the way, don't you understand? I'm doing the best that I can. See, they think that their sin is mm, not great, not that bad. I'm doing the best I can, right? I'm trying to be a pretty good person. See, they don't understand. It's not about health, getting health better. It's about being dead. And you want to understand the need of the gift. You want to understand the magnitude of the gift until you understand the magnitude of your sin. See, here's what Paul says. You are not in need of a doctor. You are in need of a resurrection, And if you and I need a resurrection, there is no degrees of depravity. It has infected every part of everyone in this room today. See, I'm convinced, as I read this passage, that a gift won't change your life until you know how much you need it. John said this, Butler, I didn't know that I was that sick. I didn't know I was that sick. Some people need to say this morning, Pastor Walker, I didn't know I was that seriously sinful. I didn't know. Sometimes you don't realize your diagnosis, therefore you don't take the steps to fix it. You don't realize that your situation is desperate. Paul wants us to understand just how desperate 
And you know what he does? He stacks up phrases, and there are seven of them in a row in verses 1 through 3. Here's what he says. This is how desperate our sinful situation is. Once dead, follow the course of this world, follow the prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, children of wrath. It doesn't get much more serious than that. See, there are no degrees of deadness. I've been to two funerals in the last week and a half. I've done them both. And no one argues that someone, I've never heard it, no one has ever argued that someone is more dead than someone else. See, we have all, we have all succumbed in those verses. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is why the gift of God is indispensable. You could get a lot of other gifts to help you out if you were just a little sick. But when you're dead, there's only one gift, one singular gift that could change your life forever. See, can I tell you honestly, we are not spiritually poor. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing. We are not spiritually on life support. We are spiritually dead. A gift cannot change your life until you see how big your need is, but also how much that gift cost. See, that's our first point, wasn't it? Our first point was, in our text, why do you need it? Pastor Walker, I get it. I need it. I need the gift of God. How do I get it? Well, he's going to tell us two ways. One's positive and one's negative. Can I tell you this? And maybe you've heard this yourself, but there is no truth in this statement at all. Some people need God's grace more than others. You ever look at someone else and they're out there and they're addicted to this and they're in a rehab center and they're done this and they're behind bars and they're not, and they're all those things. And you look at yourself and you look at them and you say, well, you know, they really, someone ought to really give them the gospel because they really need God's grace. Can I tell you this? There aren't people who need it more than others. Someone has said, and it's true, I think, there are some gifts you get for Christmas that are nice, and there's some gifts you get that are needed. Have you ever got one of those? Now, if you want to get a, it's a nice gift, but it's frivolous. You really don't need it. Um, if, you want, if you got an Eagles jersey, it would be frivolous. It'd be, I guess it would be nice if you like that sort of thing. It'd be nice to get that, but it's frivolous. It's just nice, I guess. But that's different than a gift that's needed, something that's really functional, like Mountain Dew. That would be needed. <laughs> no, you, you need socks. You ever get those for Christmas? You get a box and you open up, you're really excited to see what it is, and you open up and you go, oh, socks. Oh, thanks for the T-shirts. You know, I, they are functional gifts and they're needed, Right? They're not exactly nice, but they are needed. Can I tell you this? The, the gospel, the gift of God, just, just, it's not just a nice gift. It's not one you'd open up and go, oh, that's nice. No, it's, it's, it's needed. It, in fact, it's more than functional. It's absolutely essential if you want to have life. Paul not only wants you to know your need of the gift of God, but how you can get it. How do you get it? Well, look at the two words that starts verse 4. But God, I can't tell you two more life-changing verses than that. 
two life-changing words in that. But God, listen, listen, put it in the context. When you were dead, but God. When you were depraved, but God. When you were disobedient, but God. When you were doomed, but God. See, that's him breaking in because he can't just look at what you and I have become in our sin and do nothing about it. He can't stay out of it. He has to get involved in it, and he did. It is what the two words mean. It means, but God, you weren't coming to him. He had to come to you. See, he is the great initiator. Someone, a commentator I read a long time ago, I can't remember who it was, said all of us are no ones. And by it, he meant this. Listen to Romans 10, I mean, Romans 3, verses 10 through 14. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, no one does good, not even one. He says, see, every single one of us are no ones. Because it wasn't us coming after God, it wasn't us seeking God, it wasn't us looking in the mirror and saying, oh God, look at how bad spiritually off I am, I really need you. That is not us. We do not have the capability in our depravity to do such things. See, in one word, salvation is a one-way street. It's God coming after us, and as Jesus put it in Luke 19.10, I've come to seek and to save, seek and to save that which was lost. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. We are not the people giving the presence. We're not even the people wanting the presence. But God is the one giving them. Even, verse 5 says, even when you were dead. Now, I don't know about you. I read that and I say, why would he do it? (laughs) I mean, not too many people seek dead people. Why would he do it? If we were dead in our sins, why in the world would he seek us? Can I tell you this? Look at the passage this way. You remember how he stacked up the phrases in verses 1 to 3 to tell you how bad off you are? Now he's going to do the same thing on the positive side. He's going to stack up the phrases to show you why he would come after you. Look at verses 4, 5 through 7. Rich in mercy, but God, who's rich, no, not just merciful, not giving you what you, do, you deserve, hell and wrath, but he's rich in it. He's not doling it out. He's not forced to give you a little bit so he kind of grudgingly hears a little mercy. No, he's rich in it. He lavishes it. He pours it out. Why? Because he knows that's how much you need because his gift is indispensable. It's a gift you have to have. And then he says, with his much love, much love, See, he didn't sprinkle a little bit on the top. He didn't add a spoonful. No, much. Soaked, saturated. That's what he did to love you and I. With the love that he loved us. Let's repeat the word twice in a row so that you can emphatically understand how serious it is. And then he has to say grace, not once, not twice, but three times. Three times in verses 5, 7, and 8. He has to tell you, you know how you were saved? Because I gave you what you did not deserve, grace. And then he says, you know what, that grace, I didn't give it to you, and I was angry the whole time. All right, I'm going to forgive you, God. No, he says, and I want to show you and do it in my kindness. Do you see what God is saying? Let me just stack it up for you. You had all of these things stacked up against you, but I canceled it out. I overcame, because I stacked up all of these things just to show you how much I love you. 
See, this is how God wrapped up salvation. This is how God at Christmas wrapped up the gift of God. See, he wrapped it up in mercy and grace and love and kindness. Three billion dollars. Three billion. That's what people are going to spend on gift wrapping paper this season. 52% of everyone who was surveyed said this. The worst part of Christmas is wrapping the presents. How many agree with that? Come on, raise your hand. That's me. I'm one of those. Okay. All of those people, listen to this, almost all the people who said they hate wrapping presents paid for someone to wrap them professionally for them. And all God's people said. Now, I do that too. I have my presents professionally wrapped by Mackenzie for years. She does a great job, and she's pretty cheap too. They said this, the hardest gifts to wrap are as follows, bicycle, Gym equipment, how would you do that? And a guitar. Those are the, so I hope you're not getting any of those because it's really depressing. Um, can I tell you this? It wasn't so with God. See, wrapping his present with Jesus was not his worst thing. It was his greatest thing because he wrapped it with mercy and grace and love and kindness to us. Why? Because he knew you need the gift. And you know how the only way you can get it? See, there are three verbs in verses 5 and 6. And they all start with a Greek prefix. And it means co. Can I tell you what it means? You were co-raised with him. You co-died with him. You were co-resurrected with him. You were co-seated with him. What's the point? What's the point of it? If you are connected to God through Jesus... That's how you get the gifts. You have to be connected to God to get his gift. And the only way you can be connected to him is through Jesus. See, you are connected to God through Jesus. And if that's true, everything that has been given to him will be given to you. That's why it's co. Now, not literally. You're not literally dead. You didn't literally get resurrected. You didn't literally get seated in the heavenlies, but you did legally, see. You are, that, it's a spiritual reality that when you get the gift of God, you get connected to Jesus. And although it's invisible, here's what it says. See, everything he has is yours, including his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's all yours. How can that be, Pastor Walker? That would be a gift beyond my comprehension. Here's how it can happen. Because we get everything he deserved because he got everything we deserved. See, it was the death. It was the most expensive Christmas present of all time. And Jesus paid it all. The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story, illustration, I'll never forget it. He says he invited a friend over his house, fictional story, and he left the door open for them and said, just come in, have a seat at the table, and I'll be there in a few minutes. And that's exactly what happened. His friends come over, sit at the table, and he's waiting for Martin Lloyd-Jones to come. And as he's sitting there waiting, there's a paper on the Table And so he takes the paper in his hands and he looks at it, he reads it, it's a bill. And he looks at the bill and he studies it a little bit 
and he decides that he is going to take a check. Wait, most of you still know what a check is, right? Okay. Uh, he, t- he takes the check out, and he writes it and covers the entire amount. He sits it back in the envelope with the paper, and when Martin Lloyd-Jones gets in, he says, hey, I wanted you to know, I saw the bill on the table, I read it, and I've paid it all. And then he asks in his book, how would you, if that happened to you, how would you feel about it? And he said this, if it was my phone bill, I would say, well, that was nice. Thank you. If he said, if it was the bill for my library fines for the books that were overdue for $3.15, I would say, wow, thank you. That's nice of you. But he said this, what if it was seven years of back taxes? What if it was your total bill for your surgery that was over 100000 that you had no insurance for? What if it was all of your kids' college loans and bills, not just one of your kids, all of them? How would you feel then? Oh, completely different, he says. You would say, wow, why and how in the world? Could you, you, you wouldn't have words for it. Why would you do that for me? That's amazing. I, I'm floored, to say the least. See, that's exactly what Jesus has done. See, he took everything you deserved. He took the paper off your table and he read it with your name on it and saw everything that you owed. And here's what he says. I'm going to pay for all of it for you. See, if you are connected to me, if you're connected to me by faith, that's how you get the gift of God. But let me close with this. How is it that you don't get it? The negative part. Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace... You have been saved. It's the epistle in the New Testament that uses grace more than any other. Interesting. Can I tell you this little fact? In Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it is one long extended sentence. There are no breaks. It's just one sentence. One long sentence. And in that sentence, we are told, or actually I should say it this way, we are not told to do anything. We're not told to do anything in that. You know why? Because we cannot. When it comes to the gift of God, there is nothing. Dead people can't do anything. They can't respond to anything. And we are not told to do anything. But you know what is written over the entire text? What God has done. What God has done. And that's why we get to, in verses 8 and 9, the little parallel statements. Did you see them? He's going to spell it out very clearly for you. Not of yourselves, parallel, not of works. It's the same way of saying the same thing. See, it's you can't save yourself. Let me be specific, Paul says. And you can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't achieve it. You don't get it by being Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist. Not because you're baptized, catechism, sacraments, good person, moral. None of those things. Do you see what he's saying? It's all God doing. It's done. Not do. It's done. God did it all. You can't. I can't. Save, not of yourself. Of. It's a little preposition. Source. You are not the source of your salvation. There is only one and it isn't you. It's God. That's why, can I say this? 
The gift of God is incredibly humbling. Incredibly humbling. Salvation cannot be earned. It can't be merited. We don't get saved by our good works. Verse 10 says we get saved for good works. And that's hard on us to hear, isn't it? It's hard on us to hear. It says in verse 10, we are his workmanship. We are his, literally his poem. That's what it is. We are, he wrote our life story. He changed our life story. You can't change it. He does it. We don't work for our salvation. He worked for our salvation. Can I tell you, Christmas is this. It means that you are so lost, so lost, that you cannot save yourself and nothing less than the death of Jesus, listen, in the way that he died proves how lost you are. He didn't die by dying in prison for a crime, right? He wasn't hung, he wasn't lynched, he wasn't killed in a robbery. No, he died. And how did he die? He died on a cross, he died a torturous death, public shame, why? That is what it took to save dead people. And you know what's hard about it? It's just not flattering. We live in a world that's been so therapeutic and, and, and so inundated with self-esteem that we can hardly grasp that this is true. Hardly grasp. Thomas Brooks, Puritan writer who wrote Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, says this, all classes of human beings get their self-esteem from boasting over and despising other classes of people. And then he, he elaborates on rich people do it, middle class people do it, poor people do it. Here's what he says, because everyone does it. To be able to handle where you are and who you are, you boast over and compare yourself to other people, he says. But here's what the verse says. Why did God do it this way? Why is it that we are so dead in our sins? Why is it only Jesus, only the cross, only the gift of God? Why is it so indispensable? Here's what it says. That no one should boast. No one should boast. Think of it this way. See, when you come and receive the gift of God, it knocks out all the crutches that you're leaning on in your life. Years and years ago, I don't want to say 15, 18 years ago, I broke my foot. It's funny, I won't tell you the whole story. But Kevin Stiles, the youth pastor, was chasing me over a can of Mountain Dew. I'm not lying to you. I jumped down the stairs to get away from him. And when I did, I twisted my foot at the same time and it snapped the bone in the outside of my foot in half. See, Mountain Dew is worth it, though. So I had a cast on, and I had a cast on, and I had to have crutches. And so I had another friend, John, who um, invited me over to his house. And I, this is the first day on my crutches. So I'm going over to his house. It's wintertime. It's, it, it just snowed. It was icy. And so I come up to the door, and his wife is inside, and she has a hair kind of a thing, or, or no, no, nails. She did nails for people, and she had the little shop inside of her house. I didn't know that at the time. So I'm coming out the door, and he's going like, whoa, 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 take it really easy. You're on these crutches. You got one leg going. You're, it's too easy to fall and slip. So I, I was trying to be very careful. So I go inside, and his wife is in the other room, and the person, whoever it is, she's doing their nails. So he gets in the door, he opens it, and, and he walks in, and he walks a couple steps, and he goes, okay, come on, take it really easy. So I got to the top of the steps, and I thought 
that I could make it. And so I put the crutches down, but he had tracked in water from his shoes. So when he did, I put my crutches down on that and they went just like that. So I'm falling and he, what would anyone else do, really? I grabbed him, right? I grabbed him. I grabbed on, I didn't just grab, I grabbed onto him. My my crutches go flying. I grab onto him. I, and I I start going like this backwards now. And I fall backwards and I pull John right on front of me. And he's right like this. We're laying on the floor. He's right this. And of course, right at that time, the woman that she's doing the nails comes out. They come around out. What's going on? They look at me like, what is happening? (laughs) It's not fun to have your crutches knocked out from under you. It's not fun at all. But that's what the gospel does. Christmas, Jesus coming, it knocks all the crutches out from under you in your life. Because you can't say this anymore. I'm not that bad. I'm not like him or her. You know, I am pretty good. No one should boast. See, when grace fills your heart, boasting will be emptied from your mouth. That's Christmas. Jeremiah the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But him who boasts, let him boast in this. If you're going to boast, he says, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The only boast when you become a Christian and your life's been flooded with grace is Jesus and that's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should boast, save or only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. It's our only boast. Let me close. Two lines from an old, old hymn, but listen to the words. Lay your deadly doing down. Oh, I love that line. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. See, that's what Christmas is. Jesus came to say, let me change your life forever. Gloriously complete. But you got to lay down your deadly doing and come and get the gift of grace. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're like my friend John Butler. Oh, Pastor Walker. I didn't know I was that spiritually bad off. I didn't know my sin was that serious. But I do now. I see it. I see what the scripture says. I'm dead. Oh, it's true, my friend. But Jesus is alive. And he came to rescue sinners with his gift of grace. And if you're here this morning with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, you'd say, Pastor Walker, oh, I know about him, but I don't know him. I don't know him. I've never come to the place where I see that he and his death and resurrection is the only hope of heaven. He's the only payment 
that will satisfy God's wrath. It's the only possible way that I could ever be connected to God, both now and forever. I see that this morning. And I, more than that, I need that this morning. I see how the gift of God through Jesus is absolutely indispensable. It's the only thing that can turn my life completely around. When no one looking around, would you say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand. Pray for me. I need to get saved. I need to come to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I need God's gracious gift for my life this morning. Pray for me. Would you do that right now? And I'll pray for you in just a little bit. Just slip your hand up real quick and put it back down. Thank you. Thank you. Someone else. Main floor of the balcony. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you. I see that hand. Also, ma'am, thank you. Listen, can I take just 30 seconds? Your heads bowed, eyes closed. Listen, those of you who raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to do something. Remember I told you the gift of God is humbling? It is. Would you humble yourself this morning? We're going to sing a song, and then after we're going to do that, we're going to say goodbye to the Sanchez's today. But before we do any of that, can I say for those who raise their hand, would you just come this morning? We'll have someone take the Bible. Listen, today is the gift of God. You can receive it. You can receive it by grace. Why would you go another day without it? Humble yourself, would you please? Humble yourself. And I'm going to come and say, Pastor Walker, all you got to say to me is I need the gift of God. Walking the aisle does nothing for you, but having someone take the Bible and show you how the gift of God by faith can be yours today can change everything, everything. Would you do that? Father, you know the hearts of all those who raised their hand today, and there were a number. Oh, Father, I pray that in these moments, your spirit would grant brokenness, repentance. It is also a gift. I pray, Father, that you would now call those to yourself, that they might come to know you and have life in your name. Life, where all they've known is death. Please, God, do it for your glory and by your grace. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory ahead of time that you and you alone deserve. In Jesus' matchless name I pray. Amen.